For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Holy Father, we thank you for the wonder of the gospel, how your righteous justice is expressed and your righteous kindness is seen. May we never be ashamed of this good news. We ask your hand over our outreach next Saturday in that hour and a half that you would bless the efforts of our people. You said the harvest is great, but the laborers are few. And so please, I earnestly ask that you'd give us the needed workers to come and help and help us to see the difference it will make in all of eternity. Now, we are humbled this morning as we think that you have spoken your very breath and put it on paper for us to read and to study. Help us not to be flippant. Help us to focus. We pray the Spirit of God would use the Word of God today to convict someone of sin, righteousness, and judgment that they might call upon Him in faith. Father, I can preach Your Word, but only the Spirit of God can impart it. I pray that out of clean hearts today, those who have met You, we would long for it that we would be teachable to the Spirit and whatever He would have to say. Help me this morning in this meeting and the meetings I have this afternoon and meet the pastor tonight and all that concerns your work, your kingdom. Please help me, fill me, and empower me. I ask it in Jesus' name for His sake. Amen. Would you take God's infallible and authoritative word and turn to the book of Revelation chapter 20. It's the very last book of the Bible if you're new to the Scripture. Now, if you're joining us for the first time, we are in a series called God's Prophetic Schedule. We're between a verse-by-verse exposition of an entire book, and right now we're looking at God's prophetic plan, and we're moving into that section of the plan as we approach eternity future. You can see the title of the message is Your Day in God's Court. And I want to use Revelation 20, a familiar text, as a launch pad for this important passage of Scripture. If you know Revelation, it's really the conclusion to the Bible. Remember the word revelation is the Greek word apokalupsis. That means to unveil or to uncover. And so in some English Bibles, it's not called the revelation, it's called the apocalypse. And that's okay. Uh, Remember, titles of books are not inspired. They're there to help us to identify where we are in the Scripture. And of course, this is the last book of the Bible. It describes the consummation of all things for both the believer and for the unbeliever, the believer in heaven, the unbeliever in hell. And as you study Revelation, it will capture your attention, it will stir your imagination, it will point you to our grand and glorious future that God has for us in heaven, but at times it will just quiet your soul and cause you to be still and to think hard. And certainly that's true of this topic this morning, your day in God's court. Now, if you were here last time, we studied the current hell, Hades, that someday will be turned over into the lake of fire. But today, all unbelievers are in Hades. But the final destination of the lost is what's referred to at the lo- as the great white throne judgment, where they are cast into the lake of fire. It's a real, literal place. Now, sadly, today, people use the word hell almost as a swear word 
Or sometimes they use it to describe a difficult time in life. He or she is going through hell. When I went into the ministry in 1978, 86% of all Americans believed in hell. According to Pew Research, 54% of Americans believe in hell, and it keeps getting lower. 21% of millennials, 16% of Generation Z. But according to the epistle of James, if you were to survey the demonic world, 100% of the demons believe in hell and they shudder. Hell is a real place. I know to preach on it is offensive to some. It's certainly unpopular. Some would call me rude or impolite, out of step with the way the average American thinks. Look, you may not like the doctrine of God's eternal retribution, but it does not change the truth. I do not like war or poverty or racism or child abuse, but it doesn't change the truth of it. Hating to die does not change the fact that you are going to die. And I've heard some pastors almost with a sense of delight preach on hell. That's disgusting to me. When we preach on the doctrine of eternal retribution... There ought to be compassion in our heart, almost a tear in our eye. And so this morning, I hope that you will understand that as you think about this doctrine of eternal retribution, it will cause you to grow in your appreciation for what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Now, when you think about the return of Jesus, there's over 300 references in the New Testament alone to the fact that he's coming again. And here in the Revelation, in the final chapter, in 22.12, the Scripture says, Behold, I am coming quickly, Jesus is speaking, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. In fact, the very final thought in the Bible, Jesus said, Yes, I am coming quickly, to which John says, Amen, even so come, Lord Jesus. But not everyone believes what God has plainly said. And when it comes to hell, many pulpits are silent, especially the evangelical pulpit. It's hard today to hear a sermon in an evangelical so-called Bible-believing church on the doctrine of hell. Those sermons are rare. And then there are the liberal pulpits that outright deny the existence of hell. Rob Bell, who denies hell is real in his New York Times bestseller book called Love Wins, wrote this, pastors preaching on hell will only cause people's stomach to churn and their pulses to rise. Well, I may warn you this morning, your pulse may rise, your stomach may churn a little bit, but we're not going to run away from the truth. In fact, faster and faster, more than ever, people are departing from the truth. And we're not totally surprised by that because God said this is what would happen at the end of time. No one knows the day or the hour, but we know the season. We know we are in that final time frame of human history, if you've been with us in this series, because at the end of time, God would bring Israel back into the land. They are there. God is setting the stage for the return of His Son. And God says explicitly by the Spirit that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith. The faith articular there, meaning this body of truth we call the Bible, paying attention to deceitful spirits, and doctrines of demons. Now, Jesus came the first time as a Savior. When He comes again, it's going to be very different. He is coming to judge the living and the dead. 
He came the first time to hang on a tree. When he comes again, he will sit on a throne, and we will look at one aspect of that throne this morning here in Revelation chapter 20. Follow along. We want to read verses 11 to 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, for the benefit of those who are not familiar with the book of Revelation, let me set the context of where we are in the argument of this book and really broadly with God's prophetic schedule. The theme of the Revelation is found in the opening chapter in Revelation 1-7, and there it says, He is coming with the clouds. That's the theme of the book. And God sovereignly, with this particular book, probably so we would not misunderstood it, actually gave us the outline, a divine outline of the book in Revelation 1 and verse 19. There John wrote, therefore, write the things which you have seen, that's the things in the past, and the things which are, that's the present, and the things which will take place after these things, that's the future. And so after the introduction that's found in the first eight verses, he describes the things which you have seen, and he writes of a vision of the glorious, resurrected, exalted, reigning Christ in heaven. Then in chapters 2 and 3, here on the chart, he writes about the things that are present. He writes about the church, and he addresses seven specific churches, seven churches that were real churches that were alive and functioning, that in many ways are representative of churches across the world today. And then when you come to chapter 4 and verse 1, he moves to the future. He moves, not, uh, he moves from the church to the consummation of all things. He will underscore the things that will take place after these things, metatata. And so when you come to chapter 4 and verse 1, there's a change. When he writes about the things that are in the future, in chapters 6 through 18, he is describing that horrible, terrible period of time known as the Great Tribulation. And so we're told here, after these things, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me said, come up here. Now we'll show you what must take place. There it is again. After these things, you can't miss it. A door is opened in heaven. And if you were here for the early part of this series, this is when God catches up. He raptures the church. And so in Revelation 6 through 18, the church is nowhere mentioned. The only saints that are mentioned are tribulation saints, not church saints. You do not see the church again until Revelation 19 when we come back with Christ. And so seven years of horror unfold on the earth. It is so bad that men will seek death, but they'll be unable to kill themselves. The scripture says death will flee from them. He writes of a bottomless pit that is open and 200 million demons that are released for a period of time to taunt men. 
And again, the purpose of the tribulation period is God's final wake-up call to get people to repent. He writes of this coming antichrist in his rule and reign on the earth, a singular global government, a man who will blaspheme God. And then he writes of this battle that takes place at the second coming called the Battle of Armageddon, where Jesus will return and in a moment's time squelch the rebellion against him. And so when you come to Revelation 19, uh, this is what happens after Jesus returns. So chapter 19 is his return, and then when you come into 20, 21, and 22, you're reading the events that will take place after his return. So here we are in chapter 20. Let me zoom in on the immediate context a little bit closer. In verses 11 through 20, which again we're going to use as our launch pad to study the doctrine of eternal retribution, the end of all things is at hand. Um, all that men have dreamed for, schemed for, sold their souls for, it's now finished. And they are meeting God in eternal judgment. The thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth is completed. And so the end of the thousand years, if you look at verse 10 here in our chapter, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. They were thrown in there a thousand years before. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Hell, of course, was never originally created for man. Jesus said it was created for the devil and his angels. He will say at the great white throne judgment, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. So that brings us here into the immediate context of the passage. Time as we know it at this point will have ceased. God will put the last period and the last sentence and the last paragraph of the last chapter of Scripture and He'll end it. And heaven and earth will flee and the judgment of all time will take place. And there are five dimensions to this judgment this morning that I do not want you to miss. First, there on your note-taking outline, I want you to think about the place of judgment. Now, this is a familiar text to many of you. I preached on it about four years ago. But did it do us any good? You see, you can know truth and get enamored with the end times doctrine and it not change your life. And we ought to study the doctrine of eternal retribution. And if it's not moving us and compelling us to share the good news with the lost, then we have really missed the point. So first, let's think about the place of judgment. Verse 11, then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. Now we're approaching the end of all things before God's people enter into their eternal state known as heaven and the lost enter their eternal state in the lake of fire. Again, time as we know it has ended. The bodies of all the unsaved have been drawn up from wherever they were buried. The Supreme Court with the supreme judge of the universe is sitting on the throne and he is getting ready to judge the lost of all time. I hope you have a Bible on your lap because I want you to pay close attention this morning. If you don't have a Bible, come tonight to meet the pastor. You should have a Bible on your lap and you should take notes because this is like basic discipleship. 
as you help a new believer that you've introduced to Christ. Maybe you've never introduced someone to Christ, and that's what you need to fall on your face on this afternoon and ask God for. But if you introduce someone to Christ, this is basic discipleship. This is basic truth they need to grasp. Now, please note here in verse 11 that he describes this place with a great white throne. It's great because great speaks of the power behind this throne, and white speaks of the purity of this throne. The purity of this throne is so intense that when Isaiah has a vision of it in Isaiah chapter 6, seraphim have to cover themselves because of the brilliance and holiness of God. It's so bright, no one can hide here. You don't want to stand before this throne. Sometimes I've heard Christians ignorantly pray, Lord, when we stand before you at your great white throne, there are no believers at this throne. The only people who are present are the lost of all time. And they are standing here just before they are eternally judged. This is a terrifying place. Notice too, it says, earth and heaven fled away. The Greek word translated fled away is a prophetic heiress. You say, well, that blesses my soul. It should. Listen, what it's referring to is a sudden violent termination. God isn't going to fix up the current earth. That's amillennialism. They don't know what to do with Isaiah 60 to 66. And so there's a popular book on heaven that says, well, God's going to fix up the current earth. No, he's not. He's going to destroy it. Heaven and earth fled away. Second Peter chapter 3 describes that the heaven and, current heaven and earth will be burned with fire. And God is going to create a brand new heaven and earth, Peter will echo, as will this text here in the Revelation. So the current heaven and earth are burned, and this great white throne is, I suppose, somewhere in outer space. And all the lost of all time are brought before it. Just before Revelation 21.1, God creates a new heaven and a new earth. Now, 50 times in the Revelation, the throne of God is mentioned. It's majestic. It's it's, uh, filled with splendor. But it's also terrifying, especially for lost humanity to stand here. And so... In this in-between time, God is about to deal with the very last vestige of sin in all of the universe. And here's this throne suspended and out of space. There's no place to hide. There's no rocks or trees to get behind. When Adam sinned, the Bible says he hid himself. There's no place to hide here. You're face-to-face with God Almighty. It's terrifying. That's the place of the judgment. Secondly, there in your outline, I want you to think about the person over the judgment, the person over the judgment. We read now in verse 11, then I saw a great white throne in him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. John speaks here of him who sat upon it, whose presence was so awesome, so terrifying, that heaven and earth fled away. Now, who is this person who is so awesome and so terrifying that heaven and earth would flee? Who is the judge upon this bench? None other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Here he is, not as the Lamb of God, but he's here as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He's not here as the Savior. He's here as the judge of the world. You say, how can you be so sure it's Christ? Circle the word him and let me give you some verses you can write above it. 
First John 5 and verse 22. John 5, 22. There Jesus said, For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. Or listen to this verse. Write down Acts eleven forty two. Peter is in Caesarea. And listen to what he preached. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one. He's talking about Jesus. This is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Likewise, there on Mars Hill, the apostle Paul informs us, therefore having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent. Why? Because he has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So this same Christ who wants to be your savior today, if you don't meet him in forgiveness, he will become your judge. People who have ignored him, people who have cursed him, people who have disobeyed him, people who have denied him, people who have disowned him, who have blasphemed him, they will meet him face to face. Now, we have studied already through this series how God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit share the throne of God equally. But even within the triune God, there is various responsibilities that each member of the Godhead exercises. And the unique judgment here is entrusted to the Son, of course, who provided a way of escape that you might not be here. And so here's this unbelieving world. They will all stand before the Lord. We'll see here in a moment. There's no saved people here, only lost people who have a date with Christ, a date with deity. Third, there on your outline, beyond the place of judgment and the person over the judgment, I want you to think for a few moments with me, the people at the judgment, the people who are at this judgment. We read now, beginning in verse 12, and I saw the dead the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. The sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. I think it might be helpful to define some terms here. And this is by way of review for some of you. But if you can't tell me the three aspects of the Feast of First Fruits, then it's already gone through your brain and out your ears and you don't remember. So I want you to pay attention. This is important. This, again, is basic discipleship. We discussed how there are seven feasts in Israel's history and how those seven feasts and somehow picture the work of Christ, either his first coming, or his second coming, or both. The four spring feasts, were really all accomplished at his first coming. It's not by accident that he dies literally on Passover. The time when they would slice the necks of those lambs is when Jesus is bleeding on a cross. He's buried on the day, the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread as the sinless Son of God is placed in the tomb. He is raised from the dead on Sunday, which was the Feast of first fruits, And of course, 50 days later, at Shavuot, he comes back and sends the Spirit on Pentecost. So the Feast of first fruits is underscored in these two resurrections. There's the first resurrection, and there's the second resurrection. Drop back for just a moment to verse 4 of this chapter. Verse 4, we read, And I saw thrones, 
And they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded. That's how people are executed as followers of Christ during the Great Tribulation. You get your head cut off. Those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the Word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast, the Antichrist or his image, and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. This is the resurrection of tribulation saints who have been executed. The rest of the dead, the unbelieving dead, did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. So these who come to life, their part, he says, this is the first resurrection. Notice, blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So this concept that there's one big general resurrection where all the lost and all the saved are brought together is not taught in Scripture. It's taught in medieval art. It's taught in Roman Catholicism, but it's not taught in biblical theology. And sadly, many who came out of Roman Catholicism continued with this doctrine, and they are missing the precision and the accuracy of Holy Scripture. The first resurrection is a resurrection of blessing. It's only of the saved. The second resurrection is a, rec- is a resurrection of judgment, and it's only of the lost. And as we'll see in a moment, no one in the first resurrection will be lost, and no one in the second resurrection will be saved. So we need to ask, in what sense is this the first resurrection? Because if you've read your Bible, you already know that there have been some resurrections that have happened. Well, in the broadest sense, remember, there are two kinds of resurrections. There's the resurrection of the saved and the resurrection of the unsaved. The resurrection of the saved is the first resurrection, and it speaks of a kind of resurrection that every true child of God will indeed experience. Remember, seven feasts, one of those feasts was the Feast of First Fruits. And in 1 Corinthians 15, when the Apostle Paul is describing the resurrection, he makes this statement. He speaks of Christ who is the first fruits, and after that, those who are Christ at his coming. And so according to the Feast of First Fruits, the harvest had three parts to it, if you've studied it. Just as the first resurrection will have three principal parts to it. When the first fruits were ripened, the farmer would bring to the priest a sample sheaf. And the priest would take that sheaf and he would wave it before the Lord. It was called a wave offering. And it was symbolic of saying, God, we thank you for your provision. We thank you for the harvest that is coming by your hand. And of course, the singularity of the sheaf represented Christ and those small number of stalks within it, grain stalks, represented a handful of Old Testament believers who would be raised after Christ. A much overlooked and ignored verse that's found in Matthew's gospel, and you'd expect it to be in Matthew's gospel because, of course, he is writing to Jewish people who understood the seven feasts of the Old Testament. The tombs, he says, were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city, Jerusalem, and appeared to many. So Jesus 
and this handful of Old Testament saints who are resurrected are the first fruits. They are a picture of the harvest that is to come. That's stage one. Stage two of the Feast of First Fruits is a broader gathering that happens at the rapture of the church. We did a whole message on this. Listen to what Paul says concerning this general harvest. 1 Thessalonians 4. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, that's Michael, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. These are just church saints. Old Testament believers are not part of the church. They could not be part of the church. Why not? Because the spirit have not yet been given. And as you study the New Testament epistles, it's the spirit of God who makes us into one body of saints. And so the dead in Christ, the church, will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain, if you are alive when this event takes place, you'll be caught up, you'll be snatched up. Harpazo in the Latin Bible, raptore, and so we get our English word rapture. You'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. This could happen at any moment. Prophetically, nothing has ever needed to be fulfilled for Christ to come and snatch up his church. It could happen today if God so chose. Whereas his second coming, when he doesn't meet the people of God in the air, but he comes to the earth, Zechariah 14, to establish his kingdom, that's a prophetically driven event. And so, again, there's the the initial first fruits, Christ and this handful of Old Testament saints, and then there's this general resurrection. And by the way, just as there are two kinds of death, think your way through this, there's the first death, which speaks of the fact that your body would be buried in a grave somewhere, then there's the second death that we are reading of this morning where a person is eternally separated from God in the lake of fire. Even so, there are two kinds of resurrection. The first resurrection has to do with the resurrection of the righteous. The second resurrection has to do with the resurrection of the wicked. The first resurrection and the second resurrection program, as John reveals in the Revelation, is separated by a thousand years known as the millennial kingdom. Now, keep that in mind as we read about these people who are judged here in verse 12. Notice how these dead are described. I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. This just simply means no one, no lost people are excluded or overlooked. The great, that's the up and out, we might say, the big shots. And the small, that's the down and out, the nobodies in the world's eyes, the little shots. In other words, the movers, the shakers, the emperors, the dictators, the kings, the presidents, the well-connected, stand together with names people have never, ever heard. I saw the dead the great and the small. It doesn't matter how much education you've had. It doesn't matter how much culture you've had. It doesn't matter how much money you've earned. It doesn't matter how famous you might have been back on earth, how well-liked you might have been. No one who has rejected Christ will be excluded from this judgment. The great and the small, which according to the rest of Scripture, you could further subdivide into four different categories. Think about this. There's certainly in the great and the small, the out and out sinner. 
the person who hates God, who hates Christ, who hates the Bible, who hates preaching. I was listening to one of our politicians this week saying that parents shouldn't have the opportunity to know the child's gender in their school. That if a woman wants to kill the baby in her womb right up to the ninth month, that's her right. There are those who just outright hate the living God. They hate Bible preaching. They hate the things of God. They live for sin. They live for self. And by acknowledgement or not, they are living for Satan. They are being shaped by the prince of the power of this air. And it's the person who may raise his fist in the face of God, braggingly, brazenly, and saying, God, you can't control my life. In fact, many will suppress the truth they know of God and even deny his existence. The Madeline Murray O'Hares will be here. I heard her preach once. I've heard men of God inspired by the Spirit of God. If I ever heard an unbeliever inspired by the spirit of a demon, it was this woman. The Madeline Murray O'Hares will be here. The Pol Pots, the Stalins, the Hitlers. The Hefners, the Marilyn Monroes, every lost person will be here. The drug pushers, the pornographers, the perverts, the out-and-out God-haters will be here. Secondly, in the great and the small are not just the out-and-out sinners, but the self-righteous. And I'm convinced, based on what Jesus said in Luke chapter 18, that hell will be filled with self-righteous people. They think the gospel I preach is for the thief, the murderer, the pervert, the pimp, the prostitute but it's not for them. They are like the Pharisees of old that think they're just fine with God. And that's why Jesus said that the prostitutes, the drunkards, and the tax collectors were more likely candidates for the kingdom of God than those self-righteous men were. Why? Because they saw their need. And I fear that many people in America today are just swaggering their way into hell, thinking they are too good to be damned. Remember what the Apostle Paul said in Galatians 2.21? I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Do you know what that means? It means if you could be saved by keeping the Ten Commandments, by following the golden rule, by tithing, by being baptized, by becoming a church member, or anything else you can think of, then Calvary was the blunder of the ages. God was a fool to have sent his son to die on a cross. But God is no fool. But the self-righteous person, by his thinking, mocks the cross of Christ. They think, well, the drunk's going to hell, the prostitute may be going to hell, but I'm a good person. And they do not see that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So here in the great and small, there's the out-and-out sinner. There's a self-righteous person, but there's a third group. And maybe this could be the biggest group, the procrastinator. The procrastinator is here. These are people to whom the devil will whisper, some of you listening to me today, you don't need to make a decision today. You may not be sure. You may know this is true. You just don't need to make a decision today. You may be listening to me on the radio, through the internet. It's just not today. Tomorrow will be fine. And millions upon millions have been damned because they put off the need to make a decision. Today is the day of salvation. And every time you put God off, you say no, and your heart doesn't become softer and more palatable. It becomes harder and more obtuse towards the things of God. 
What a foolish thing to procrastinate. Now, there's a fourth group who's included in the great and the small, and I suppose it's the saddest group of all, not just the out-and-out sinner, not just the self-righteous person, not just the procrastinator, but the church member who's never been saved. People who have their name on the church roll, but they do not have their name in what is pictured here as the Lamb's Book of Life, and they'll go to hell with their baptismal certificate and their Sunday school attendance or anything else that they pride themselves in, but they'll be lost. I saw the great and the small. Satan doesn't care if he takes you from a church pew or takes you as a drug addict and a drunk from the gutter. As long as he can get you, he really doesn't care. And sometimes people think that somehow they can escape, but no one can escape And that brings us to the third point, and it's the principle for the judgment, Uh, the fourth point, the principle for the judgment. Beyond the place of the judgment, somewhere in outer space before God creates a new heaven and a new earth in which the new Jerusalem will come and sit upon, and the person over this judgment, the Lord Jesus, and the people at this judgment, all lost folks, there's the principle for the judgment. Don't miss it, starting in verse 12. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which are written in the books, underscore this, according to their deeds. Verse 13, and the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, note, according to their deeds. Death is a synonym here for the grave, for a place. And so in the newest edition of the New American Standard, they this time capitalize it. And that's okay. Nothing wrong with that. Though just understand there's no capitalization in the manuscripts. It's either all caps or in most cases all lower text. But he's referring here to death, to the place of the grave. Death has the body and Hades, which we studied last week, has the soul. Now understand, as we studied last week about Hades, that's not the final resting place. That's the temporary current hell, so to speak. It's like a person who goes to jail who's awaiting trial and his final sentencing comes. That's what will happen to those who are in Hades. So they are awaiting their day in court before the final sentencing comes, and we'll see why in just a moment. And so it doesn't matter where you are, whether you are in the dirt of the ground. It doesn't matter if you're in the depths of the sea. And John underscores that because a popular false teaching is seen in literature outside of the Bible is if you died at sea and your body was eaten, even your bones by fish, there would be nothing left of you and you could escape any kind of judgment. It doesn't matter if you died in the frozen north like that guy they dug up about 10 years ago who was supposedly a few thousand years old. It doesn't matter if you were buried in the sands of some hot desert, wherever you are. It doesn't matter if you were cremated and your body was turned to ashes and then dissolved. God will find you. God will raise each and every lost person up. Death in Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Now understand, Easter is a magnificent message that we preach for those who are saved. 
But while most unbelievers don't understand it, it is the worst message in the world for those who are lost. You see, just as my body is not fit to walk some streets of gold, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Now, the Bible talks about flesh and bones inheriting it, but not flesh and blood. Why? I need a new resurrection body suited for heaven. Even so, the man who dies lost, Easter is the worst message for him because it guarantees his resurrection where he will have a body that is suited forever and ever in hell. Today, people can try to escape judgment. They'll uh, try to get some fancy lawyer to get them off. They might try to disguise themselves. They might have some kind of plastic surgery, but there'll be no hiding here from God. At his command, the grave that has the body, Hades that have the soul, will be brought together in an instant and a new resurrection body, and they will stand before the Lord as lost people. You can't crawl up under the covers and hide from God Almighty. Notice again, verse 12, I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. The books, circle that word, books. The books were opened and the dead were judged, every one of them judged from the things which were written in the books. How? According to their deeds. Now, what does that mean? It simply means that God is keeping a record. Everything that you've ever done, every thought you've ever had, God wrote it down. Every word that you've ever said, it's written down in indelible ink. You remember what Ecclesiastes says in the 12th chapter, for God will bring every deed into judgment, including every secret thing, whether it is good or evil. Paul wrote to the church at Rome, God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. That means things that nobody else knows, God has written down. You see, until this moment, some people will think, well, I got away with such and such. But the scripture says, be sure of this, your sins will find you out. Do you remember what Jesus said even about our words? But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for in the day of judgment. Think about that. The profanity you spoke, the dishonesty you spoke out, the exaggeration, the people that you maligned, the lies that you told... Every word men will give an account for in the day of judgment. So there are some books in Greek, it's Biblia, and so we get our word Bible from it. We just transliterate it. It referred to a scroll or in recent centuries, a codex that's hard bound, so to speak. There are these books, and in it, the omniscient, omnipresent God has written down as an expression of his justice at this particular place every word, thought, and deed that we have done that is contrary to the ways of God. Jesus made it clear that men will be judged according to their works. By the way, it might be a little wooden in verse 13, but do you see that word everyone? It's a Greek word that literally means each one. In other words, there is an individual accountability here. You're not being judged as a family. You're not being judged as a church or a nation. You're being judged individually. And so Jesus prophesied this in Matthew 16. The Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. 
Paul, quoting the book of Proverbs, said the same thing in Romans chapter 2. He says that God will render to each person, how? According to their deeds. Now, remember, this courtroom is not to determine if someone goes to hell. That is settled. Everyone at this judgment goes to hell, as the text indicates. But yet, the scripture is clear. He will judge men according to their deeds. Don't put in your mind the false doctrine that God has this big scale with good and bad, and if the good outweigh the bad, you're in. So why are they judging men according to their deeds? Two principal reasons found in Scripture. First, your deeds will prove, they will show that you've never been born again. Jesus taught that a man's conduct demonstrates his character. And if you've had a birth from above, the direction of your life has changed. And if the direction of your life has not changed, the general principle is you just haven't been born again. You haven't been born from above. And so you're saved by grace alone, the Scripture teaches, but the grace that saves is never alone. It's not faith in Jesus plus good works equals or equates to salvation. That's Roman Catholicism. That's liberal Protestantism. That's heresy. That's a works righteousness. It's faith in Christ alone and his death, burial, and resurrection equals salvation plus good works, where works are the byproduct, the fruit, the result of being saved, but it's not how you are saved. And so first, a person's works will show or prove that they have not been born again at this judgment. Titus said it this way in Titus 1.16, they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny them. Oh, the church in America, the evangelical church is filled with people like that. I'm born again. It doesn't matter that I live with my girlfriend. It doesn't matter that I like to go out and get blitzed every week. I'm born again. It doesn't matter if I like to smoke weed. I'm born again. It doesn't matter that I don't love the people of God. I'm born again. They profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny him. You say, well, there's a lot of lost people who do good things. Of course they do. For the glory of men, for the praise of self, sometimes to alleviate a a guilty conscience, but not for the glory of God, not out of a grateful heart that, God, you've redeemed me by your grace and mercy, and so I want to serve you. Some are doing good works to earn God's approval, but they've never humbled themselves and received the Lord Jesus. Remember, Isaiah 64, 6 says, your righteous deeds are as filthy rags. Not your best deeds, uh, not your worst deeds, but your best deeds. That in the sight of an absolute holy God, they're like dirty rags. So God knows what sinners are doing, and the books will reveal. No one will be able to say, well, that's not true of me. Here it is. Right here in the book. In these books, every word, thought, and deed has been recorded. What's the second reason for God judging men according to their deeds? The second reason is for his sending out eternal retribution justly. Think your way through this. This is important. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 10. He sends the 12 apostles out. And he affirms the fact that while hell is terrible, hell is not the same for every person. In Matthew 10, beginning in verse 14, whoever does not receive you nor heed your words, as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Wait a minute. 
Sodom and Gomorrah. Talk about perversion. It'll be more tolerable for Sodom in the day of judgment? Yes. Because to whom much is given, much is expected. Jesus said if they saw the miracles in Sodom and Gomorrah that you've seen, they would have repented. And there are many people who sit under Bible preaching where hell will be hotter for them. He goes on to say in Mark chapter 12 where he warns of the hypocrites, beware of the scribes who like to walk along and walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and the chief seats in the synagogues and the places of honors at banquets who devour widows' houses. That's prosperity theology. That's the Benny Hens. That's the T.D. Jakes. That's the Joel scene. That's the Joyce Myers. People say, oh, they're good people. They preach Jesus. They preach another Jesus. They're ripping people off. That's what these people were doing. They devour widows' houses. And for appearance sake, they offer long praises, prayers, but they'll receive greater condemnation. Look, just as heaven is described as a fantastic, wonderful place for everyone who goes, it won't be the same for everyone. And every time the Lord Jesus speaks about hell, he speaks of it as a terrifying place. But somehow, in the perfect justice of God, it will not be the same for everyone. And so God will judge each sinner according to their deeds. That brings us to the fifth point. I want us to think about the penalty from the judgment, the penalty from this coming judgment. Now in verses 14 and 15, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. I want you to notice several aspects about this final penalty that comes from God's hand. First, all those who make up this second resurrection without exception are thrown into the lake of fire. There's no ifs, ands, and buts about it. It is sure and as certain as I am standing here today, no fancy lawyer will be able to get you off. There's no mercy here. There's no grace here. There's no forgiveness here. It will do no good for someone to cast themselves upon God and ask for mercy. It will be eternally too late. Don't think for a moment you can die and go to hell and somehow you can later repent and get right. You say, well, wait a minute, pastor. I was raised in a church where I was told by my pastor that these descriptions of hell are just symbolic. They're not real. Well, you were lied to. That's all I can say. You were lied to. Even if these were just symbols, a symbol is never as great as the reality. I can take a picture of a sunset, but the reality of seeing it with the naked eye is so far more powerful. And listen, there are just too many verses in Holy Scripture that describe this as a place of torment. And so you are either calling the Bible is untrue and Jesus is a liar. And so in describing this place, Jesus said it's a place of eternal punishment. Listen to what he said in Matthew 25 and verse 46. These, the lost, will go into eternal punishment, Ionion, but the righteous into eternal Ionion life. 
The Greek word that's translated here for eternal to describe heaven, eternal life, is the same word that's used to describe eternal punishment. In fact, it's the same word that modifies God's character in 1 Timothy 1.17, that he is the eternal God. So to say heaven is not eternal, to say hell is not eternal, to say God is not eternal. But you cannot do that. So no one is extinguished in hell as the Seventh-day Adventists and the Jehovah's Witness teaches. No one goes to hell for a period of time and, and then is released into heaven as the Mormon teaches. Now, Roman Catholics teach there's a place called hell, but if you're a church member, you won't go there, but you'll go to a place potentially, unless you've been deemed a saint by the church, to a place of temporal punishment until you make up for the sin that you didn't deal with. And it's called purgatory, a 12th century doctrine that you can find nowhere in Scripture. The Scripture's clear. When a man dies and he goes to hell, he's there forever and ever and ever. We just read earlier from Revelation 19 and verse 20. Let me read it again. And the beast, the Antichrist, was seized, and with him the false prophet, who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. So the very first two humans to be cast into the lake of fire. Look, when you think of the Antichrist and his false prophet, they're just normal, everyday people with flesh and blood like you and I. They're probably alive now. We don't know for sure, but they're probably alive now. But they're real people, and they are the first two recipients in the lake of fire. And when a thousand years later, Satan is cast into the lake of fire, they're still there burning. Why? Because hell never ends. Now, again, it was prepared for Satan and his angels, not for man. But three times in Scripture, in the Revelation, it's called the lake of fire. And three times, it's called the lake of fire that burns with brimstone. I told you last time that Hades, in one sense, is temporary in its present location. Because we read here in our text this morning, death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. They're very similar, though there are some differences. In Hades, the rich man who died as a lost man could see. In the lake of fire, there's nothing you can see. It's a black fire. It's a place of outer darkness, to use Jesus' words. Jesus said in Hades, he, the rich man, lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off the tongue. Why? Because I am agony in this flame. Now, I've heard preachers sometimes soften hell. They've described it like Alcatraz. For you children, that was a place of incarceration off the coast of California, and it was an island where supposedly no one could escape. And they said, well, hell is like that. You're in Alcatraz, and just as Alcatraz is surrounded by water, when you're in hell, you're surrounded by flame. That's not what the text says. He's in agony in the flame. And understand, when you minimize and trivialize the judgment of God, you trivialize the, trivialize the cross on which the Lord Jesus died, because the cross on which he died had to equal the payment that men will spend an eternity in hell trying to pull off. Christ, of course, as an infinite person, could pay in a finite period of time what you and I as finite people would take all of eternity to pull off. 
And just so you know that Jesus didn't water down the concept of hell, when he wanted to choose a word picture that we translate hell in the New Testament, he uses the Greek word Gehenna. Some of you have been with me to Jerusalem, and I will point out to you the valley of Gehenna. Gehenna was a first century dump. It's where you put your garbage, God gave in the law, wise counsel. You take your human waste and you put it outside the city to present, prevent disease. Dead animals went there. The uh, unclaimed uh, beggars and crucified men, they, always, they all went there. Your garbage went there. It was a place of continual burning and smoking and flame. That's the word Gehenna. This is why Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, if your right eye causes you to stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into Gehenna, hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be to go into Gehenna, into hell. And the parallel text in Mark chapter 9, if your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast in Gehenna. And then he says in the next verse, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, these are dramatic figures of speech, as I mentioned last time, and they're not teaching the mutilation of the Bible, but of the body, but the mortification of the body. If you cut off your right hand, you still had your left hand to execute the sin. If you plucked out your right eye, you still had your left eye in which to commit a sin. So on the surface, it may seem dramatic, but Jesus is simply bringing home a simple truth that you had better learn to treat sin as sin will treat you. That's why the scripture says, unless you repent, you perish. If you don't see your sin as sin, you have no need for a savior. You have to change your mind about sin. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. This is no normal body. This is a body that goes on for all of eternity experiencing these things. And what's even worse is we noted last time with the rich man who died and went to Hades, he had his full faculties there. You have a full memory and a full realization of what is happening. You can feel the flame. Your mouth literally is aching with thirst. And you can't get out of it. One brother wrote nearly 50 years ago in a Christian magazine I used to subscribe to. Listen to these words. Imagine the person who has just entered hell, a neighbor, a relative, a co-worker, a friend, after a roar of physical pain blasts him, he spends his first moments wailing and gnashing his teeth. But after a season, he grows accustomed to the pain, not that it's become more tolerable, but that his capacity for it is enlarged to comprehend it, yet not be consumed by it. Though it hurts, he is now able to think, and he instinctively looks about him, but as he looks, he sees only blackness. In his past life, he learned that if you looked long enough, a glow of light somewhere would yield definition to his surroundings. So he blinks and strains to focus his eyes, but his efforts yield only blackness. He turns and strains his eyes in another direction. He waits. He sees nothing but unyielding black ink. It clings to him, smothering and oppressing him, realizing that the darkness is not going to give way. He nervously begins to feel for something solid to get his bearings. He reaches for walls or rocks or trees or chairs. He stretches his legs to feel the ground and touches nothing. 
Hell, Jesus said, is a bottomless pit. However, the new occupant is slow to learn. In growing panic, he kicks his feet and waves his arms. He stretches and he lunges, but he finds nothing. After more fervish tries, he pauses from exhaustion, suspended in black. Suddenly, with a scream, he kicks, twists, and lunges until he is again too exhausted to move. He hangs there alone with his pain, unable to touch a solid object or see a solitary thing. He begins to weep. He sobs, choke. He sobs, his sobs choke through the darkness. They become weak, then lost in hell's roar. Of course, he thinks, Jesus, the God of love can get me out of this. He cries out with a surge, Jesus, Jesus, you were right. Help me. Get me out of this. He waits, breathing hard with desperation. The sound of his voice slips into the darkness and is lost. He tries again, I believe, Jesus. I believe now. Save me from this. Again, the darkness smothers his words. Our sinner is not unique, for everyone in hell believes. When he, when he, he worries of appeals, he does next what anyone would do. He assesses his situation and attempts to adapt. Then it hits him. This is forever. Jesus made it very clear. He used the same word for forever to describe both heaven and hell. Forever, he thinks. And his mind labors through the blackness until he aches. Forever, he whispers in wonder. The idea deepens, widens, and towers over him. The awful truth spreads out before him like endless overlapping slats. When I have put in 10,000 centuries of time here, I will not have accomplished one thing, and I will not have one less second to spend here. As the rich man pleaded for a drop of water, so too our new occupant entertains a similar ambition. In life, he learned that even bad things could be tolerated if one could find temporary relief. Perhaps even hell, if one could rest from time to time, would be more tolerable. But he learns, though, that the smoke of his torment goes up forever and ever, and he has no rest day or night, Revelation 14, 11. No rest day and night. Think of that forever. You say, that's awful harsh of God. No, it's not harsh, because if you want grace, you can have grace. If you want love, if you want mercy... If you want forgiveness, you can have it. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So John just plainly says, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the books of book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, in any trial, there are three parts. There's the evidence that's presented against you. Then there's your defense. And then there's the verdict that will follow. So let's imagine just for a moment that the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ has been finished, and you are about to be judged face-to-face -face with the one sitting on the throne, the Lord Jesus, who died for you. The Christ whom you ignored, the Christ whom you spurned, the Christ whose name you often used in vain, the Christ to whom you did not trust as your Savior, the one whom by the fault you rejected, now you stand before him and the books are opened. The evil deeds that you did, the lies that you told, the fights that you fought, the impurities that you lived, the things that you stole, the people that you maligned, the folks that you gossiped about, every wrong thing you have ever done, 
And not just the wrong things you did do, but the things, the good things you should have done. For James says to the one who knows right and does it not, to him it is sin. And not just the things you did and the things that you should not have done, but also the influence that you had. I mean, think about this. Jesus said that it is better for a milestone, millstone, excuse me, to be tied around your neck and to drown in the deepest sea than to cause someone to stumble. Just like typically no one goes to heaven by himself, he in some way, shape, or form influences someone for the kingdom of God. The same way no one goes to hell by himself. And this is why God waits to the very end of time for this final judgment to take place. It's not time for the pornographers to be judged. It's not time for those beer barons who are drowning young people this morning as we speak in Florida in their beer. These people will continue to corrupt after they're dead. The people they corrupt will in turn corrupt. You Hefner's so-called ministry of pornography continues to this day, though he has been dead. God will wait until the final period is put down and he'll look down, not just at what you did and what you failed to do, the things you thought, you lusted after a woman, God wrote down adultery. You hated in your heart someone, and God wrote down murder. And God will also include your total influence. And all that foul, smelly sin is laid out before you. So you go to give a defense. What is your defense? Well, God, I didn't know which church to join. I didn't know if I should be a Baptist or a Presbyterian or a Methodist or a Roman Catholic or join the community church. I just didn't know which one to join. And God would say, I didn't ask you to believe in the church. I said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Well, God, you know, I came to that church, community Bible church, and there were some hypocrites there. And they just so discouraged me, I just stopped coming and rejected the message. I didn't ask you to believe in the hypocrite. I said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Well, God, it was that preacher. I went to church to be made to feel good, and Carl Brogy made me feel bad. God would say, I didn't ask you to believe in the preacher. I said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Well, I'll tell you why I didn't go forward in that church. He preached and he gave an invitation, and I just didn't think I could live it, so I never came down. I didn't ask you to believe in yourself. I said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. So what will you say? What will your defense be? Actually, the Bible teaches you'll have no defense because Scripture is clear. Every mouth will be closed, Romans 3, in guilt. The evidence will be presented. The guilt will be apparent. The verdict of God Almighty is just. And what is that verdict? Death and Hades will be thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. If you're here this morning and you leave this life without Christ, this will be your end. Listen, if you've been born just once, you will die twice, first physically. Then you will meet God in the second death eternally. But if you've been born again, the scripture says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But if you die without Christ, you will die justly under the eternal wrath of God Almighty. 
This is a sure judgment. It's a severe judgment. But it's a sad judgment. Why it is, is it so sad? Because you don't have to go there. You see, when God says, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, you know what that means? That means your name could have been there. But it wasn't. Because of choices that you made. Now, how can we apply this this morning? Let me suggest three applications as we close our time. Number one, first, the reality of hell should increase my hatred for sin. Certainly, the doctrine of eternal retribution should cause you to hate sin as God hates sin. I mean, does the doctrine of hell offend you? Well, listen, as the reality of hell offends you, so sin offends God. Just as we cannot bear to look upon the horrors of hell, God cannot bear to look upon the horrors of sin. Sin revolts God, and that's why he sent his son, and it's why Jesus became an object of wrath. And if sin is this bad, if sin deserves this kind of judgment, we should hate it as God does. Number two, the reality of hell should make my witness more fervent. It should make my witness more fervent. If the biblical truth of divine eternal retribution grips your heart, it doesn't lead you to arrogance. It leads you to compassion. It will lead you to open your mouth to reach out to lost people, to try to win them into the kingdom. And at times, it will literally make you weep over some lost person. It not only prompts you to holiness, it moves you to witness. And we have excellent opportunities even this week even this week. Third and finally, I learned from this passage the reality of hell should make me want to be sure of my own salvation. Did you notice in this chapter that there are no born-again Christians in this judgment, only the lost of all time? Where is the believer? The believer has committed sin. He has deeds and thoughts and actions and secret things that he did that should be judged. Why is he not here? Because his name is in a different book, the book of life. Isaiah said of the believer, I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick crowd, cloud and your sins like a heavy mist. For I have redeemed you. I, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. The apostle Peter said it this way in Acts 3, repent and be converted that your sins may be wiped away. There are many non-Christians who have convinced themselves that I've gotten away with my sin. But your sin will find you out. You say, well, how can I have my record erased? He was pierced through for our transgressions, the prophet wrote. He was crushed for our iniquities. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. Do you understand that? It was prophesied an innocent, sinless substitute bore your judgment so you wouldn't have to. It is a very fact of hell that makes the love of God and the wonder of his grace all the more appealing. That Jesus satisfied justice. 
Again, it's not a place created for man, but for the devil and his angels. The Bible tells us that this world is being shaped by the prince of the power of the air who is energizing the sons of disobedience. And if you follow the sons of disobedience, you will get in the end what they will get, eternal judgment. I deserve to go to hell. But I settled my case out of court when I was 18 years old. And I received the mercy of God Almighty. I know my name is in his book and his spirit lives in me. God's down payment of what he started, he will complete. But if your name is not in that book, you will never see the inside of heaven. But the good news is your name can be in that book. But you must humble yourself and call upon the Lord Jesus to save you, and he will in a split second. You know, people prepare for all kinds of things in this life. They take out every kind of insurance to make sure their house is covered, their car is covered, their health is covered. They prepare to get a job so that they can earn a living and provide for their family. And they, they do all these preparations. But the most important preparation to be ready for eternity, millions, yes, even billions have ignored and this may be your last chance to receive Jesus. I'm not here to tell you today to go to hell. I'm here to tell you, come to heaven, and he'll receive you. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Many are here today listening, live streaming by internet. Some are listening by radio in some station in the country. And if you will bow your head and call upon Jesus and trust him today, he will guarantee your entrance into his kingdom. Would you say, Jesus, I'm a sinner, but I thank you that the very judgment I deserve in hell, you accomplished for me on your cross. Lord Jesus, save me. For whoever will call upon the name of this resurrected Christ, they will instantly be saved. Our Father, we have soaked our mind in Holy Scripture this morning. But if the truth were known, many of us have lost our passion to introduce lost people into the kingdom, to even invite them to church. May you deal with our indifference May we repent of our apathy and may we walk in holiness before the one who gave everything for us. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.